Good afternoon, and welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community, an award-winning show that inspires, educates, and empowers patients, survivors, and caregivers to live well with cancer. Welcome to Frankly Speaking About Cancer, a program that focuses on informing and inspiring people to live well with cancer. I'm Natalie Castelli, Senior Director at the Cancer Support Community. For 40 years, we've been a relentless ally for anyone impacted by cancer. We help individuals manage the realities of this disruptive disease and get back to normal. Whether accessing our free services in person at one of 175 locations, online, or over our toll-free helpline, you're getting a team of licensed professionals providing patient navigation, financial counseling, genetic counseling, pediatric support, and more. Today's show is going to focus on advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. Over the last decade, the number of treatment options for patients with advanced cancers has really expanded. So I'm looking forward to finding out more about what's available for patients facing this difficult diagnosis. The first thing I did when I started working on this episode is reach out to my colleague, Claire. And she told me the person I had to have on this show was Dr. Daniel Guinesman. And I am thrilled to say that he is with us today. Let me tell you a little bit about him, and I think you'll understand why I'm so excited. Dr. Guinesman serves as Chief Division of Genetourinary Medical Oncology, Associate Professor, Department of Hematology Oncology, and Vice Chair Quality Improvement Programs at Fox Chase Cancer Center, Temple Health in Philadelphia, where he's part of a large multidisciplinary team of distinguished clinicians and researchers. In his clinical practice, he focuses on the care of patients with prostate, kidney, bladder, penile, adrenal, and testicular cancer, and his research interest is in the health outcomes as well as clinical trials development. Dr. Guinesman's treatment philosophy is to work together with each patient, their family, and a team of his expert colleagues to harness the most recent advances in oncology for every single patient. Welcome to the show, Dr. Guinesman. Hey, great to be here. Thanks for having me, Natalie. Sure. So at some point, I think everyone has either thought or maybe even said out loud something along the lines of, my bladder is about to burst and they've been running for the bathroom. But can you tell us what exactly is the bladder and what role does it play in the body? Yeah, sure. Um, When I talk to patients about bladder cancer sort of think about it as uh, as an onion or a balloon actually and it's it's really meant to hold our urine remember our, our urine is made by our kidneys uh, we have two of them and from the kidneys it goes down pipes which we call ureters into the bladder it collects in the bladder as it collects, the bladder expands just like a balloon would if you're blowing up a balloon. And eventually <clears throat> you urinate it out. And, and so when you have that sensation, like my bladder is about to burst, I have to go to the bathroom. A lot of urine has collected in there and it's telling your body it's time to go to the bathroom, time to urinate. So what happens when someone is diagnosed with bladder cancer? What has happened? Right. So Cancer in general, no matter where it is in the body, is really an abnormal growth of cells. The cells that are supposed to either not grow at all or grow a little bit, start to 
grow, proliferate very quickly and abnormally. And so at the core, when you have bladder cancer, the lining of the bladder, the lining of that balloon, or maybe what you would say the inner layer of the onion starts to have a problem. It starts to grow abnormally. The cells mutate, they change. And that growth fundamentally is what causes the problem of bladder cancer. And I'd also like to point out that um, the lining actually is the same from the vestibule, the entrance of your kidneys, down those two pipes I mentioned that I call the ureters, the hoses, to the bladder, and then from the bladder through the urethra. And so that, that lining is all the same in humans. And you can actually have development of what we're calling now bladder cancer anywhere along that track. And we actually separate bladder cancer into what we call upper track. That's in the kidney and the ureter part, the pipes. Bladder cancer, that's in the bladder itself. And then what we call sort of lower track can urinary cancer, lower track urothelial carcinoma, that's in the urethra. So it can happen anywhere along that continuum. And what are some um, symptoms that somebody might be experiencing that would cause them concern and have them, you know, looking to see a doctor? Sure. I think probably one of the most common ones is bleeding. You go to the bathroom and all of a sudden you see blood. That is actually probably by far the most common symptom, whether you're a man or a woman. Sometimes people can have burning with urination. Sometimes they can have pain. Sometimes they can have spasms or feels like spasms in, in that area in the lower, lower abdomen. Um, but, but very often it's bleeding. And I think if, if you're going to the bathroom and you're having blood come out, that is a big red flag. You need to seek care. You need to talk to your primary care doctor. Uh, you need to maybe go to an urgent care. It's not something that is normal, uh, really, almost ever. And so mm. it should be investigated. Most of the time, it's actually probably not cancer, okay? Maybe it's a kidney stone. Maybe you have a urinary tract infection. But if you see it, you got to rule out some of those very serious things like bladder cancer. So you should absolutely seek care. And do we know anything at this point about potential causes or risk factors? The biggest risk factor by far is smoking. Cigarette use, mm. either current or past cigarette use, is the number one risk factor. Um, there are some others that are less common. There are certain dyes and chemicals that people may have worked with in their line of work or as hobbies that can increase this, uh, this risk. Sometimes chronic infections. If somebody has had many urinary tract infections over their lifetime for whatever reason, that can be a risk factor. Or if somebody's had, for example, a Foley catheter for some reason, some foreign body, in their urethra, in their bladder, that that can cause irritation as well. Um, but like many other cancers, unfortunately, smoking is the number one risk factor. Mm. So what happens when someone um, is diagnosed with advanced or metastatic bladder cancer as compared to what we were just talking about? Right. So I, I think, it, again, it's, it's really important to sort of, if you think about 
the bladder and you think about it as an onion, an onion has layers. And bladder cancer most often starts in that very first inner layer in the center. And we call that non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. That's the majority actually of bladder cancer. And that's treated just with scraping, scraping that tumor, those abnormal cells out, and then sometimes putting things into the bladder like BCG, which is a form of immunotherapy, which we'll touch Mm -hmm. upon later, to help kill the cancer cells. That's the most common. But if the cancer continues to grow and it goes through that first layer into the next layer, we call that muscle invasive bladder cancer. So if you think about it as the next layer of that onion, Mm -hmm. muscle invasive bladder cancer. And that's a little more serious. That's where medical oncologists oftentimes come in to give things like chemotherapy. And that's where patients are recommended to have surgery to actually remove the whole bladder or have radiation to the whole bladder. But what happens if the cancer continues to grow and it goes through the next layer into the fat around the bladder, or as you point out, metastatic or advanced bladder cancer, where it spreads somewhere else in the body? That's what we then typically call stage four or again, advanced or metastatic disease. So that word really means in oncology and cancer care that a particular tumor, and it really doesn't matter what kind of cancer it is. It started somewhere and it moved somewhere else in the body. And that's that's what we mean by advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. Maybe it moved to lymph nodes. Maybe it moved to the lungs. Maybe it moved to the liver or the bone. It really could go anywhere, um, but it's just spread well beyond the bladder. And at, at this time that we're living in, in this moment, what is the goal of treatment with metastatic bladder cancer? Um, Is there a cure for people who receive this diagnosis? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, And unfortunately, the answer is there almost is never a cure, although I hesitate to say never because there are uh, exceptions to that rule. And we have patients, fortunately, that um, have metastatic bladder cancer and are seemingly in what we call a complete remission. No evidence of the cancer have been in that remission for really a long time. And so I think occasionally it's possible to be cured of this disease, but it's very rare. And I think the goal for most patients with advanced or metastatic bladder cancer today in 2022 is really to help them live as long as possible with as good of quality of life as possible. Um, And really, I like to think of it as, can we make this a chronic disease to a certain extent? Yeah, that was going to be my next question about, you know, looking at it as a chronic condition. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it's, it's not, it's not the same. It's not fair to say, well, gosh, can we, you know, is it the same as having high blood pressure or diabetes, um, or arthritis, right? Those are chronic conditions. You live with them for, you know, years to decades. We're not quite there yet, but we're trying to be. And we're certainly better today than we were just even a few years ago. But really, that's what we'd like to do. We'd like to say, hey, can we continue to do treatments either continuously or intermittently and just help you live as good as possible and continue to work if you'd like to continue to spend time with your family, continue to have a good quality of life um, with this diagnosis. That's what we're trying to do. 
Well, that's actually a great transitional statement uh, for us to start looking at these different treatment options. And I'd like to start with surgery. Um, You touched a little bit before about with bladder cancer, not advanced or metastasized, that often surgery is um, a first course of action. Is that the same case with advanced or metastatic cancer? Is there a, a bladder cancer? Is there a place still for surgery as a treatment option? Or has it already happened? Yeah, so that's a good question. So um, yes and no, <laughs> or, or, or no and yes. So many patients with advanced bladder cancer have in fact had bladder surgery in the past. They may have had those scrapings um, or they actually may have had what we call a cystectomy. That's that's just a word. Uh, say the bladder has been removed, okay? They may have had that. And then unfortunately, at some point down the road, the cancer comes back and they have advanced or metastatic disease. Some people present initially with advanced bladder cancer, have never had the surgery to remove the bladder. And in those instances, most of the time, surgery is actually not appropriate. And the reason it's not appropriate is we don't think it's actually gonna help the person. Uh, You're gonna go through a very big procedure Uh, a life-changing procedure, which is what the surgery to remove the bladder is. But unfortunately, the disease has already spread beyond the bladder. You're still going to need systemic therapy, treatments that go all over the body. So we say, well, gosh, what's the point then of subjecting you, putting you through this big surgery? And in those cases, we then don't do that. We treat with drugs, with systemic therapy. Right. Um, So let's talk about a treatment option that many, many people will have heard of and are familiar with, which is chemotherapy. What is that? Um, If you can tell us just with a tiny bit more detail, what is the goal when um, you advocate for that treatment option for your patients and how is it administered? You know, what is that experience like of being on chemotherapy, of receiving chemotherapy? Yeah. And and I think a lot of people uh, unfortunately have seen loved ones or friends, you know, go, go through chemotherapy, which it, you know, fundamentally are drugs that help to kill rapidly dividing cells, okay? They are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes administered through the vein uh, where you sit in a chair. Here, Fakshis, in many places, it's sort of a lazy boy-like chair in an infusion room. And and you have bags uh, of these chemicals that are going into your veins, and you do this either on a weekly basis or every few week basis. Um, and it's meant to kill those cancer cells that are quickly growing. Um, and so that's the reason sometimes you'll see, for example, people lose their hair during chemotherapy because hair is also sort of cells that are rapidly dividing and growing. And so they're affected by chemotherapy as opposed to maybe some other cells in your body that are really not, they're, they're quiet, they're not growing, and then chemotherapy doesn't affect it. So chemotherapy can be very effective at, in this disease. It can do a really good job sometimes in suppressing the cancer, eliminating the cancer, putting people into a remission Um, improving their pain and helping them live longer. And we actually use chemotherapy even in the non-advanced setting, in the non-metastatic setting before surgery to help people live longer. We do it after surgery and we certainly do it in this advanced uh, disease as well. So we're just about to come up to our first break, um, but I think we have time to take a look at this before that. 
How would you compare chemotherapy to radiation therapy, which is a more localized approach, right? So when radiation therapy is recommended, what is the goal there um, in comparison to chemotherapy? Yeah, it's a good question. Radiation therapy is very, very targeted, as you as you pointed out. So you, maybe you'll target the bladder, maybe you'll target a bone area or a lymph node, but the only treatment that happens is where it's targeted, it's pinpointed. Chemotherapy goes all over the body. That's the major difference. So it will treat cancer cells no matter where they are in the body. Uh, lymph nodes, organs, doesn't matter. Uh, and, and that's really the big difference. Side effects are very different as well. Side effects of radiation are really uh, dependent on where you're pinpointing that radiation and what's around. Side effects of chemotherapy are those systemic things like the hair loss, like the tiredness, like maybe some nausea and things like that. So we've got to take a break because I'm getting messages from our producers that we're up. But when we come back from the break, um, I'd just like to reconnect a little bit on radiation therapy and see you know, what it is that you're targeting with the radiation therapy. You gave us that beautiful image of the onion that we can really latch onto. So what are we, what is the radiologist looking for and what are we trying to accomplish? So we're just going to take a very short break. Please do not go away because we still have so much to learn from Dr. Guinnessman. Um, this is frankly speaking about cancer. And today's episode is brought to you by Pfizer and EMD Serono. We will be right back. Effective cancer treatment requires more than just medication or surgery. For the country's 12 million cancer survivors and their loved ones, the social and emotional challenges of adapting to life with cancer are ongoing. How to handle co-workers' questions, how to get comfortable with new physical realities, how to reassure worried family members, or explain to friends your priorities have changed. The Cancer Support Community is ready to help by providing free counseling, education, and hope for survivors and their caregivers. Whether online or at over 100 locations around the world, the Cancer Support Community is ready to offer the support you need to live a better life with cancer. For more information on support groups, publications, nutrition, exercise programs, and more, call 1-888-793-9355 or visit us online at www.cancersupportcommunity.org. That's cancersupportcommunity.org. The Cancer Support Community a global network of education and hope. Hi, I'm Nick Nicolaitis, President and CEO of Morphotech, and we're delighted to be a sponsor of Cancer Support Community's Frankly Speaking About Cancer series. Morphotech and its parent company, Azi, are committed to human health care, and we recognize that patients and their families are the most important participants in the health care process. We salute our global advocacy partners who are devoted to improving the lives of people touched by cancer every day. Cancer, it's a lonely word terms I don't understand, choices I never thought I'd have to make. But there is hope and help. Support from cancer survivors. Links to research and clinical trials. Help with finances and access to care. All behind you at Breakaway from Cancer, created by Amgen to empower cancer patients. The cancer support community is proud to be a partner of Breakaway from Cancer. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness.
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. I'm your host, Natalie Castelli, and today we're talking about advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. With us is Dr. Daniel Guinesman of Fox Chase Cancer Center at Temple Health. Dr. Guinesman, before the break, we were talking about radiation therapy. And I guess the question I had was understanding that the radiation is being used to really, um, in a very local manner, um, uh, focus on the cancer in a specific place. Mm-hmm. Using this image of the onion that you shared with us previously, how do you know where to target sure. the radiation? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. The techniques for radiation have really advanced, and the machines um, are sort of really out of this world. And basically what happens um, is if you can imagine when people get a CAT scan where they lay down and and they go through this little tube and and images of inside get formed, um, a radiation oncologist can actually look at those images, try to see where the tumor is, and then build the treatment plan so that the machine can deliver that radiation specifically to those areas where you see the tumor or you think the tumor may be. So if you're radiating the bladder, for example, which is an option for people who have that muscle invasive bladder cancer, remember that second layer of the onion, you would actually radiate the whole bladder a little bit around it and maybe some areas where the lymph nodes may be. If you're radiating a particular lymph node somewhere, you can actually see that lymph node on the CAT scan and you pinpoint to that spot. Or if you're radiating a spot in a bone because somebody has pain, you pinpoint the radiation to that area to kill those cells, stop the growth, and actually, you know, maybe take away the pain. So it, it it's a very fancy machine and it's sort of computer programming and it's people looking with their eyes and building particular plans to direct the machine to deliver that radiation to the spot that you want it to go to. So you just said that radiation therapy has advanced a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the newer treatment options that everyone is hearing about their commercials on TV is immunotherapy. Yes. Would immunotherapy be employed as a treatment option for metastatic bladder cancer? Yeah, absolutely. It's actually become one of the cornerstones of the therapies that we use. And it's actually only happened probably over the last five to seven years. Prior to that, uh, immunotherapy, unfortunately, wasn't available. And now, as you point out, you hear about it all the time um, on TV, on the radio. There are billboards. Most people can can say, oh, yeah, I've heard of that drug. Um, And um, in part, it's because immunotherapy really tries to harness your own immune system, wake up your own immune system, so to speak, to focus on the cancer, target the cancer, and, and try to eliminate it. So it, it, it's something that we use oftentimes uh, in bladder cancer. And how is it administered? Is that something that happens at the office, in the home? Yeah, so immunotherapy is administered similarly to chemotherapy, where it is IV. It happens in the office. And um, people come in typically every two to three or four weeks. Um, and, and they'll see the doctor or the treatment team. They'll get blood work. They'll, they'll make sure that they're doing okay. And then they'll, they'll get the immunotherapy administered. It takes 
roughly about an hour, hour and a half to do that. And how are the side effects in uh, with immunotherapy as compared to radiation or chemo? Yeah, uh, very different, very different. So immunotherapy typically is actually better tolerated, has fewer side effects on average than, say, chemotherapy. But the side effects are very different if they occur. So remember, the goal of immunotherapy, again, is to wake up the immune system and try to hone it onto the cancer cells, right? Because one of the things that cancer cells do is they try to put your own immune system to sleep. They try to trick it into not attacking the cancer cells, okay? Because the immune system, what's its goal? Its goal is to see something foreign. And this is not just in cancer. This is an infectious disease too, right? You see a virus. We obviously have just gone through the whole COVID pandemic. You see a virus. The immune system's goal is to attack the virus, destroy it. It sees a foreign cell like cancer. It's supposed to destroy it, but it obviously didn't. The cancer grew. And one of the reasons that it happens is that cancer cells put up these flags that try to trick the immune system to fall asleep. So the whole goal of this immunotherapy is to wake the immune system up, remove these breaks, and have it attack the cancer. And so when that happens, sometimes the immune system can get confused. And instead of just attacking the cancer, it can attack normal body parts. And that's where the side effects can come in. So for example, you can get a rash because it attacks your skin, or you can get diarrhea because it attacks your bowel, or you can get inflammation of your lungs or your liver. And in fact, almost any body part or organ can get inflamed as a side effect of immunotherapy. Luckily, it happens relatively infrequently, in particularly in any serious way. And if it does, we have drugs like steroids to calm the immune system back down and turn that off and sort of get rid of that side effect. Okay. So continuing with um, more recent treatment options, let's talk about targeted therapies. Um, you said radiation therapy was actually a form of targeted therapies, but there are also newer things that have um, recently become available to patients. Can you talk to those a little bit, um, you know, how yeah. they work again, how they're administered? And um, and then once we hear about that, I also just want to really understand from you with all of these different options available, how do you decide what might best serve a particular patient? Yeah, those are all good questions. So <clears throat> targeted therapy, um, usually in oncology and in bladder cancer, means that we have found some mutation, something in your cells, something in that cancer that tells us this is one of the major drivers, one of the major causes of this cell growing abnormally. And we have a drug to try to stop that growth in particular because of that mutation. And so we have, for example, a pill now that is approved for advanced bladder cancer if you have a certain mutation that will help stop the cancer growth. And, and this is now a pill, this is not IV, um, and uh, it's FDA approved and, it, and it's been quite successful in those folks who have that particular mutation. And there are a lot of trials and a lot of investigation going into trying to figure out more of these targets, more of these mutations for which we can develop 
targeted systemic therapy. Chemotherapy is not really targeted. Immunotherapy is really sort of also systemic. It's really not targeted. Um, they, these pills are, are very specific to certain mutation, certain people. And ideally, what we would like to get to is every person, every patient with this disease have a very particular and individualized treatment plan based on their particular cancer, based particular on their mutational profile. So how do you find out what that person's profile is to see if you can match them up with a, a medication? Yeah. So uh, in all patients in, with advanced bladder cancer, we try to take their cancer, their tissue, whether it's a biopsy from a lymph or um, from the bladder itself, and we sequence it. So we actually do fancy tests on it that tell us what are all the mutations in that tumor. And then using that, we can actually come back to the patient and say, you know, this makes sense or this doesn't make sense. Sometimes it's not helpful but sometimes it's very helpful and can actually open up new avenues of treatment. So we try to do that for all patients. And do you sometimes come to the conclusion that a combination of treatments might be the most effective way to proceed or are they usually done one at a time or individually? Yeah, it's a good question. In bladder cancer, it typically is done in sequence and one at a time, Um, but there are certainly combination approaches that are being uh, investigated, have been investigated, sometimes based on that mutational profile, but typically right now things are done in sequence. So after that initial sequence, a patient might be transitioned to maintenance therapy. Um, What would prompt that decision to transition? And what does maintenance therapy really mean? What happens during that period? Yeah. Um, So maintenance therapy is therapy that is typically done after you've achieved a certain response to try to maintain that response. And so the best example that we have in advanced bladder cancer is after somebody receives chemotherapy as their initial treatment, if they've had a response, which most people do, you can transition to maintenance immunotherapy. So that immunotherapy we were talking about, instead of waiting for things to grow again, you just started right away after you've achieved some stability or response with chemotherapy in the hopes of maintaining that response. And you can continue that maintenance therapy for a long time. So sometimes for years, uh, as long as the patient is continuing to respond and the disease continues to be in good control. You mentioned earlier about a lot of clinical trials that are taking place at the moment. And We know that's one of your um, professional and probably personal interests. So um, before we talk about clinical trials and advanced bladder cancer, let's do a little myth busting because there are a lot of misconceptions out there about clinical trials. So I'm just going to ask you two questions. One is, if you participate in a clinical trial, is it possible that you could be placed in a group that receives no treatment at all? And two... Should people look at clinical trials as a treatment option of last resort? Uh, Those are great questions and important questions, uh, really, because I'd like to clarify that. Today, certainly in bladder cancer and almost all uh, of oncology, it is extremely rare for someone to be in a clinical trial where you are treated with placebo, with sugar pills, with basically nothing. 
almost always a clinical trial nowadays is designed either in a way where everyone gets the new treatment or in such a way where half the people get the standard of care, the best we've got today, and half the people get that standard of care plus something else that we're studying. So it is very, very rare to just be placed in a group that doesn't get anything. That is rarely ethical, uh, and it's just uh, not done very much. So it's something you should always talk to your doctor about um, and be clear on. But I, I think in my experience, it almost never happens. Your second question was, are clinical trials only sort of a matter of last resort? And I would say absolutely not. Mm. I think it's very important to ask right from the beginning, are there clinical trials available for me and for my situation? Because Oftentimes there are, and oftentimes the sooner you get into a clinical trial, the sooner you have some new medications uh, available to you, the better off it may be. It expands your options. So um, I think that's not the case. Certainly as the disease proceeds and you've tried different treatments, clinical trials may be offered to you, uh, but you should absolutely ask about it right from the beginning. And in fact, I always tell people, you really should ask about your options at every fork in the road, okay? You start off, you make the best decision that you can with your treatment team. You go get the right opinions that you need to get. You make that decision and you, and you go forward with it. And when the next fork in the road comes, you repeat the process. And it just becomes an iterative process over and over again. Let's make the best decision we can right now. Now, what if you have a patient who um, their healthcare team does not talk to them about the clinical trial as an, a clinical trial as an option? How can they find out if maybe there's something that could be available to them? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, number one, ask ask your treating team. Um, yeah, well, very often they'll be more than happy to talk to you about it, or they'd be more than happy to refer you to a center that has these clinical trials or could talk to you about those clinical trials. And really, no oncologist uh, should, should feel bad about that. No patient should feel bad about asking their treatment team. Uh, you, you should do that. You should be proactive and um, have a discussion about it. It may be there is no clinical trial. It may be that a clinical trial doesn't make sense and that's okay, but you should absolutely ask. I think it should be one of those kind of questions that you come with on a piece of paper with family members. Um, and, and there's also a lot of really good websites and information out there, of course, as you know, um, about clinical trials, about bladder cancer. And, and uh, I, I would encourage everybody to, to do just a little bit of research. And if you need help, whatever cancer center you're at, uh, ask the navigators, ask the social workers, ask your treating team about this. So we are almost out of time, which I cannot believe, but I want to dispel one more myth with you because you're really good at this myth busting. Sure. Um, and that's about palliative care. Um, as I'm sure you know, palliative care often gets confused with hospice care, yeah. but how can palliative care, how can a palliative care professional help on this multi multidisciplinary team that um, you and your colleagues are working with? And how does that help with patient care? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, because uh, palliative care really can be done in parallel, should be done in parallel with treating the cancer. It's really a holistic approach focused on 
pain control, focused on emotional support, focused on any sort of social help that you may need. And um, there's a lot of people at a cancer center that are there for you, psychologists, psychiatrists, um, nutritionists, uh, physical therapists, uh, you know, lots of folks there. And, And palliative care is about improving your quality of life. And remember, the goal of treatment for advanced cancer, advanced bladder cancer, is to help you live as long as possible with as good of quality of life as possible. And speaking of studies that we just talked about, studies have shown that folks who use palliative care and use it early on just have a better quality of life and in fact can live longer just from having palliative care. So I think it's an important myth. It's something you should, again, talk to your team about. Most cancer centers have a good palliative care team. They're really instrumental and vital to good cancer care. Thank you so much. Uh, Like I said, I can't believe it was like a blink of an eye, uh, the time we spent together. And I'm just so grateful for the way you were able to really take a complicated topic and make it um, visual and understandable and accessible. And you've just done such a great service to all of our listeners on this difficult topic. So thank you again for being with us today. We are going to take a very quick commercial break, but when we come back, we're going to be talking with two experts about how to cope with some of the challenges that come with an advanced or metastatic bladder cancer diagnosis, and you're not going to want to miss a moment of their advice and insights. So don't go away. Today's episode is brought to you by Pfizer and AMD Serrano. We'll be right back. Cancer Support Community is proud to be a partner of Magnolia Meals at Home, a new pilot program that aims to help patients by providing nourishing meals to households affected by breast cancer so loved ones can spend more quality time together. This program is currently available in and around two pilot cities, Andover, Massachusetts and Woodcliffe Lake, New Jersey. Participants will receive one delivery of meals every month for up to six months when enrolled in the program. Each delivery includes up to seven meals designed to help meet the nutritional needs of people living with breast cancer and 10 meals for family members. This novel program is brought to you by the AZI Women's Oncology Program, Magnolia. Cancer Care, the Cancer Support Community, and Meals on Wheels Association of America. To find out if you or loved ones are eligible, visit online at www.magnoliamealsathome.com or call 617-733-5848. People living with breast cancer often find it difficult to ask for help, and many of the people in their lives want to help, but don't know how. During National Breast Cancer Awareness Month, Cancer Support Community is proud to support Meal Trains sponsored by Magnolia, which utilizes Mealtrain.com, a free shared online calendar to streamline the process of giving and receiving meals for families coping with breast cancer. Help us reach our goal of 1,000 new breast cancer-specific meal trains this October. To learn more, visit Mealtrain.com MMT and enter the code MAGNOLIAB or visit us at cancersupportcommunity.org. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer with the Cancer Support Community. 
Welcome back to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Today's episode is brought to you by Pfizer and EMD Serrano. I'm your host, Natalie Castelli, and today's show is focused on advanced or metastatic bladder cancer. We're going to continue our conversation with two extremely knowledgeable and experienced professionals, Monica Scanlon, an oncology nurse navigator at Fox Chase Cancer Center at Temple Health, and my colleague and friend, Rachel Sachs, who serves as Senior Director of Education at the Cancer Support Community. Let me tell you a little bit about Monica and Rachel before we get started. Prior to becoming an oncology nurse navigator at Fox Chase, Monica worked for 29 years as an oncology operating room nurse at Fox Chase as part of a multidisciplinary team. As a nurse navigator, she now works with the urologist with whom she worked side-by-side in the OR. Rachel is a licensed oncology social worker. Prior to joining CSC, Rachel served as the Director of Cancer Services at Doylestown Hospital, a community hospital in Pennsylvania. In this role, Rachel led a team of oncology professionals to provide comprehensive treatment, navigation, and assistance to cancer patients and their families. Rachel has spent her entire professional career in healthcare, providing support, advocacy, and education to patients while always maintaining a focus on improving access to care. Thank you both for being here with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. So I'd like to start by talking about your specialties. What role did the oncology nurse navigator and oncology social worker play on the care team? And when would patients first be connected with each? Monica, why don't you go first? Okay. Um, As soon as they call to make an appointment, the nurse navigator reaches out and, you know, tells them a little bit about the whole process of coming to Fox Chase. And, um, you know, we get their records and just, you know, talk and reassure, find out what their areas of concern are or any um, health deficits. And we refer them to um, the necessary, um, you know, uh, social work or, you know, and it's, it's, we work along with them. We listen to their um, fears and we mostly offer support in the beginning and they can call us. They know that we will always answer the phone for them and be there no matter what and to answer their questions. Okay. How about you, Rachel? Yeah. So basically in the process, like Monica said, um, we often get referrals from the nurse navigators. We could be getting referrals at any time really during the treatment process from nurses, physicians, et cetera. We like to start, um, like Monica indicated in the very beginning so that we know our patients um, really before they start um, treatment or surgery or what have you. But at any point in the treatment process um, is when we will get involved. And social workers provide counseling, resources. We can assist with transportation, food, insurance, referrals to support groups. And if a patient's experienced distress at any point in the process of treatment and post-treatment, we'll be there to assist them along. Mm -hmm. So Monica, when that first phone call, when that first meeting is taking place with the patient, what should they expect? Um, How should they prepare for that meeting? And, Mm -hmm. you know, having worked with a lot of patients, what are some of the common concerns that you've seen patients bring up? So I think the first thing that they are concerned with is, you know, is anything going to change? When we get metastatic patients, like, you know, 
um, they may have already had their treatment coming to us. They they sometimes come as last ditch, um, ditch effort type thing. Um, they they just want to be heard what their concerns are. So I sit and listen to them. And I mean, I can be on the phone with them two hours and then meet them, um, you know, in person. And a lot of times they're very concerned about their, their body image and, and um, you know, how are they going to pay bills? That's, and like Rachel said, the referrals to um, services is one of the, um, most helpful things for them, you know, Hey, I don't have to worry about a meal. You know, I have meals on wheels coming or they don't realize that they can, um, you know, get these services. They, they have no idea of the services. I give them our website and let them know the treatment guidelines and that they will always have a team that will listen to them that will be readily available. I think that is one of the biggest things they want to always be heard and they want to know that they can reach out and talk to somebody if need be. And that's one of the things, you know, we give them our, I give them my business cards, but on the back of it, one of the most important things that has all the different numbers to access here at Fox Chase. And I think if they have, if they know where to go, that's a big a big plus for them. So, I would and I would agree with Monica. I mean, the nurse and the social worker and the entire team really work in tandem. Mm-hmm. So even you know that as a nurse navigator, they often provide several resources that the social worker would and back and forth. So we, the social workers, really rely on the nurses for you know the physical components and the side effects, and we work hand in hand together, which I think really makes a rich team and helps the patient along the journey. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Absolutely. when I spoke uh, previously with Dr. Guinesman, he did a great job walking us through um, the various treatment options that are currently available for advanced mm-hmm. bladder cancer, um, and also some of the side effects of those treatments. And I'm wondering, first of all, if you're experiencing um, side effects, when should you bring that up to someone? And who do you bring that up to? You know, you're talking about this multidisciplinary team. What should be that first stop for patients? And, you know, how regularly or how quickly should that communication be happening? Well, right away. And because some of the, um, they might not even realize that some of those side effects could be extremely, um, you know, alter their health and they might need to be hospitalized for it. Like, and they don't, so they're, they're told to do it no matter what changes, what side effect they have, because they might not think, oh, that's not so bad, but it could be, and it could affect any treatment moving forward too. And, uh, you know, a lot of the immunosuppressants that they can really, um, I mean, the, the new drugs can really, um, you know, cause a lot of side effects and everybody's different. So we try and let them know, you know, yes, call me, call your clinic nurse. Most of the time they, they get the portal accounts. They can just email now, but they know that they can always call me. If I don't know the answer, I will find out the answer or point them in the right direction. And as Rachel says, absolutely. The social worker, whereas they're more, um, you know, the support and you know, sometimes they may be talking and they may find out that the patients experience some side effects that they haven't, you know, told 
anybody about. So we do treat that very seriously and we make sure they have, if not one, several numbers and their portal accounts to be able to, um, you know, report these effects. You know, I think when you speak to anyone about bladder cancer or advanced or metastatic bladder cancer, one of the first things that inevitably comes to mind is surgery to remove the bladder and how that surgery might change their lives. Monica, how do you help people prepare for that surgery and cope with it afterwards? And what are some concerns over the course of your career, um, both as an OR nurse and now as a nurse navigator, that you've heard patients share with you? Um, mostly having to wear a bag is what they say when the bladder's removed. You know, that's body image. Um, you know, it, they, they think that they're no longer desirable to their partner. And, um, and some patients say, I will, I'd rather die than have that. But um, you try and like just do teaching. We, we start teaching from day one. Um, besides giving them all those resources, um, you know, and now, thankfully, there are so many different types of treatments, even for advanced um, bladder cancer, that they, it's not always just, you know, removing the bladder. They might be a candidate to have, you know, the chemo and radiation and, you know, a little bit of just, you know, um, scraping out the the bladder, but not removing it in its entirety. entirety. And th- that, I think, is very reassuring to them. Um, we, get, we get people of all ages. I had a 45-year-old man who, um, he is from Texas, but he was relocating to this area. And um, I recommended the Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network to him. Um, and he said, oh, I am familiar with that. In fact, I volunteer for them. And I was like, that's great. He goes, yeah, because when the first time I went, I was the youngest person in that office, a whole bunch of old men and women. And here I am, you know, he's, he said, I felt like a kid. And basically he was at, you know, such a young age. And um, so he is now given back to that. And he, he was diagnosed with stage four bladder cancer. And fortunately, you know, he's still alive. There's so many um, new and improved therapies now. So um, it's no longer a death sentence. And one of the things I want them to know is you have to be an active participant. And, you know, um, we're here to help them. And Monica, is one thing that you do um, try to pair sometimes if other patients are willing to talk with patients who are about to go through the same thing? Mm-hmm. Combine, you know, compare those patients, have them talk to one another to provide that level of support? Yes, we have um, here at Fox Chase, it's called um, People to People, um, and they do pair them up with somebody similar in age, economic backgrounds, you know, interests, that type of thing. As And Bladder Cancer Advocacy Network also does that. And, you know, you don't want to say misery loves company, but it's just, and you know, when somebody knows what you're going through, that can be so much more supportive for you. For sure. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. So Rachel, Monica's mentioned body image a few times in, um, in her remarks right now and explanations to us. Can you talk a little bit towards that? um, What that impact might be, how people maybe can cope with the changes that are occurring in their lives? 
Sure. I mean, with bladder cancer specifically, um, you know, there's issues in terms of burning, irritation, Mm -hmm. potential leakage, urinary incontinence. um, And this can affect daily interactions um, going out. So how Mm -hmm. do you plan for that? How do you plan to go out a meal with your loved one or spouse Mm -hmm. or significant other? Um, So those are things that also truly can affect, like Monica indicated, sexual intimacy and Mm -hmm. feeling awkward. And how do I feel comfortable with my partner, significant other, loved one? Um, Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we hear about. And like Monica indicated, there's so many things, um, medications, um, other interventions, and there's definitely hope. But I think that when you hear about a cancer, whether it be bladder cancer or another type of cancer, you ultimately think about how is this going to affect me emotionally, physically, and, you know, the long run, and it's scary. Um, So there are real concerns, but there are concerns that we, the healthcare team, try to address head on. We try to talk about these concerns before the surgery, before the intervention, um, and then we provide support throughout and try to make it as easy as possible and provide the level of support that the patient and their loved one needs. Perfectly said. So that leads me to another thought, which is uncertainty. And I'm wondering, Rachel, if you can share your insights on coping with uncertainty. Um, Generally speaking, I mean, we're coming out of the COVID pandemic where everyone, everyone has now experienced uncertainty, but also through the more specific lens of a cancer experience and one like um, advanced bladder cancer where a person might find themselves in maintenance therapy, right? And Mm -hmm. so there's this question of, I don't know, are you in limbo? Where are you? Can you speak to that a little bit? Sure. So I think we really want to level set because uncertainty is real and we all have uncertainty throughout our life, right? So whether it ranges from something small to something huge. So, you know, I can tell you recently, my daughter was picking colleges and she was saying to us, is this the right college for me? I'm so uncertain if this is the right one and am I picking the right major? So there's that level of uncertainty, which to her at 18 is big, but in the scheme of things, it's small, you know, Mm -hmm. as we know as adults. And then when you get that diagnosis of cancer, um, there's that uncertainty in terms of, am I going to make it through the surgery? Okay. Am I going to develop an infection? What's going to happen at my one month appointment, three months, six months, a year, five years from now. So uncertainty is really, truly real. And we want to recognize that and normalize that. Um, There's one thing that we want to do is indicate to our patients and their loved ones that there's tons of treatment out there and that we continue to make progress and advancements every day, like clinical trials. We want our patients, when they're waiting for different test results or they're waiting for surgery, to fill their day with events and family and things that they can rely on to fill that time. So Rachel, is that really addressing um, scanxiety, the anxiety that some folks feel about going in for testing, kind of that reckoning, like, is mm-hmm. what kind of news am I going to get? Is that what you're referring to? Well, that's, that's, an, that's another issue for sure, skin anxiety, because yeah. skin anxiety and uncertainty really interact. Mm-hmm. 
Um, And you really can't separate one from the other. Um, But um, in terms of scanxiety, that's a true and real emotion and feeling in terms of what's going to happen after I'm done surgery uh, or after I'm done a treatment and I'm waiting and I'm having this level of anxiety about what is my next test result going to indicate and how do I live my life waiting uh, for those test results and how do I fill my life um, meaningfully and not get overwhelmed just thinking about the next appointment or the next test. So they certainly interact with one another because anxiety brings uncertainty and you have uncertainty about your test results. So we, it's really hard to separate the two, but mm-hmm. they're real. And we want to tell our patients and the people that are caring for them that these are real, we want to normalize them, but we don't mm-hmm. want the uncertainty or this anxiety to overwhelm and make the day or the days go longer than they need to be. So um, with the last few moments we have together, um, what the big note I'm hearing is, is your oncology nurse navigator and your oncology social worker have a wealth of resources to bring to you to make this experience the best that it can be. And so as patients and caregivers, we should not hesitate to reach out with any question and any concern and not wait on it. I think that's the big takeaway from today's conversation for me. Yes, absolutely. Thank you both so much for being here. I mean, I've learned a lot. I know our listeners have learned a lot and I'm just so grateful that you could make the time to be with us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. So um, this has been Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Uh, Again, I'm Natalie Castelli, and I'm the Senior Director at the uh, Cancer Support Community. So as I mentioned earlier, uh, the Cancer Support Community provides a multitude of in-person, online, and telephonic support. So for more information about our programs, visit us on our website at cancersupportcommunity.org or call our Cancer Support Helpline at 888 793-9355. Until next time, be well, do well, and live well. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking About Cancer. Connect with the Cancer Support Community every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network, and online at cancersupportcommunity.org.